0: What should the church be doing? Sometimes it seems as if just about everyone has a list of answers to that question. Uh, Even some folks who have no desire to attend or be part of a church still have sometimes strong convictions about what uh, the church should or should not be doing. If you were to add up all of the opinion pieces and social media posts out there that proclaim the church should be doing this or shouldn't be doing that on the list, you'd probably find yourself crushed under the sheer impossibility of doing everything that's out there, especially uh, for smaller churches. Uh, Sometimes it feels like there's this assumption that every church is a megachurch with unlimited resources, and so you get these expectations like... uh, that are just beyond the reach of the vast majority of churches, things like you know, hiring an ASL translator to translate our full worship service into sign language, or you've seen children's ministry curricula that assume you have a full drama team to put on a skit every week. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you've got kind of the anti-institutional crowd telling us that practices like building ownership and paying pastors have corrupted the church we should work towards some kind of more organic uh, model if you are a parent you're familiar with the burden of other people's unrealistic and and contrary uh, expectations for you this especially seems to be true for for moms come to think of it if you're single you've probably dealt with just a different set of other people's expectations for your life Uh, But there are so many different competing visions of what the church ought to be and do, um, what we ought to be doing especially, that it can certainly be overwhelming. And the answer you're expecting me to say as your pastor at this point is that we should instead pursue God's vision, right? And I won't disappoint you there. It is God's vision that we should be concerned with. It is his church. And so we have started this new series to look to God's word to understand what God has to say about his church. We are, of course, not immune from importing our own ideas into Scripture, and so we do need to return again and again and again to the Word of God, testing, sharpening our understanding, praying for the Spirit's correction and assurance as we do so. So that, again, brings us to our sermon series that we started last week, Uh, For those who weren't here last week or several weeks ago when I announced it, we are starting 2024 with a sermon series on the church. And last week we looked at the question, what even is the church? And I offered the definition that the church is made up of human beings whom God has redeemed by the blood of Jesus and whom God has gathered and is gathering into one body for the ultimate purpose of his own glory. So if that's what the church is... And as a church, we are a, an expression, a local expression of that vision that we looked at last week from Revelation 7, when by God's grace, believers from every tribe and tongue and nation will stand before the throne of God, pour out their praise to him through Christ, the Lamb who was slain. If that's, that's the vision, the glory of God in, in and through his eternal and incarnate Son, that's what we're working toward then helping one one another along our journey to that destination. God uses the church to reach the lost once they've been found, to help them to grow and to guard them from falling until he brings us all home. I believe God does not fail in this task, even though he works through flawed and broken and sinful creatures like us. So last week I made the point that church means gathering and so being the church isn't about a moral or activist to-do list, but fundamentally about our gathering as God's people, gathering around God's Word, the Lord's Table, in prayer and fellowship and care for one another. Today's sermon is either, uh, depending on how you want to look at it, uh, taking a step farther beyond that, adding to it, or just elaborating more on that same point. Uh, Today I want to begin talking about the work of the church, that question, what should the church be doing? What has God called us to do as his body, the body of Christ here on earth? Uh, Someone somewhere came up with a clever alliteration for summarizing the work of the church with three E's, exaltation, edification, and evangelism, I have no idea who came up with this first. It's been pirated by great gobs of people ever since, so I guess it's not stealing if everyone has already stolen it. I don't know if that works, but we'll go with it for now. Exaltation, our service to God. Edification, our service to one another. And then evangelism, serving the world, serving the lost. So today, I will actually bring up all three of those. But I'm really intending to focus on the first one: exaltation, serving God. You could also call it worship. That brings us to our sermon text today from 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter is one of those books uh, that it doesn't take much work for us to see the relevance today. Peter writes to a church that is facing persecution, which he calls a fiery trial. But the specific forms of trial that he mentions are things like servants with harsh and unreasonable masters, wives with husbands who disobey the word, and simply being insulted for being a Christian by people who are upset that you aren't living the same kind of sinful lifestyle that they do and that perhaps you used to. I know many of you have talked about experiencing that last one, uh, pretty much to the letter. Social persecution is genuine persecution. The word of God doesn't only count state-sponsored torture and execution. And and social persecution is real hardship. Peter calls it a fiery trial. His answer is not, uh, suck it up, at least you're still alive. His answer is, this is a trial. His answer is, in fact to dig into the message of the gospel. He says things like set your mind on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ in chapter 1, verse 13. The gospel is what empowers us to endure hardship, resist temptation to give in and be like the culture around us. You were ransomed, he says, from the futile ways of, Inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Remembering the cost at which we were purchased, remembering the gospel as how we stay the course. But Peter makes it clear that even this is not something that we each simply pursue all by ourselves. He says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. The word of God, the gospel, has caused us to be born again. It has given us this imperishable hope in Christ Jesus, but notice that the gospel has given birth to not just isolated individuals, but a body of believers. That is the fruit of the gospel. As Peter indicates, verse 5, the church is not just individual stones, but stones put together, built together into a building, a temple, a place where God dwells. It's such a beautiful image of the church, isn't it? It captures what I was talking about last week from Revelation, that being the church is not about, in the first place, what we do, but about what God is doing, building us together, what God is making us. It's about the relationship that we share together with God as his people and his presence among us, even even now. So within that, if we can call it a relational context, Peter does point us to some things that we are to do. There are instructions here, right? These are the very first steps of the church's work. They're really the heart of everything else that we are called to do. I'm going to summarize uh, the instruction uh, that I see in 1 Peter 2, this passage with three words, receive, receive, Give and proclaim. So receive, give, and proclaim. We'll start with receive. might seem strange to say that receive is something we, we do, uh, but well, we'll see what I mean here. Consider verses 2 and 3. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Notice the imperative verb here, or command, or instruction in that verse. Long for the pure spiritual milk. By the way, there's a question of translation. If you have a different uh, translation open on your lap, uh, some tra- translations do say "pure spiritual milk," others say "pure milk of the word." Uh, the Greek word here is logikos, which comes, which is related to the word for Well, the word for word, um, word for word. Um, But typically it can mean something like logical, rational. It can mean spiritual. John Calvin uh, suggested it means something like logical in the sense of corresponding to our new birth in Christ. In the preceding uh, verses, uh, preceding chapter um, Paul has just spoken about, how we have been born again. We have this new birth. And then as newborn babes, so to speak, the the milk with which we seek to be nourished which we long for is in keeping with that new birth, It's fitting with the new life that God has brought us into. I won't go into too much detail about all this, but I think that makes sense. There's some debate about whether Peter is just talking about God's word as the pure spiritual milk, or if it's more general, everything God supplies to nourish and nurture our faith. Uh, the word of God is certainly at the top of Peter's mind here, since he's so passionately been reminding us that it's the precious and imperishable word of God by which we were born again. But long story short, I think Peter calls us to long for that same words, same gospel message at heart that gave us new birth with every means that God gives us to point us to that gospel, nourish and sustain our life in Christ. So the, the word of God meaning scripture itself, but Lord's Supper, prayer, fellowship together, and so forth. Long for pure spiritual milk, the means God has given to sustain us. If indeed you have tasted That the Lord is good. Another little thing to to clarify there with that uh, conditional statement if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. I don't think that Peter's purpose is to say, if you have tasted, if you genuinely know God, you will already find yourself longing for pure spiritual milk. If that were the case, he wouldn't need to tell them to do it, right? If it happened automatically. But most commentators point out that if can have the sense of since or because, because you have tasted that the Lord is good, because you have already tasted the goodness of the Lord, long for even more. You've tasted his goodness, as we've said, through his word that gave you new birth, gave you the assurance of this wonderful, imperishable inheritance that you have in Christ, long for even more of what God has to give you, the word and all his other graces that continue to feed our, our spiritual life. And not simply because you desire these things for their own sake, but because you, want, because you know that God is good. At heart, it is God that we are to long for together. You long for the word of God, not simply because you enjoy studying it, or you feel like you're supposed to, or you want to seem smart, or it's the good Bible-believing thing to do, and you don't want to be like those Protestant liberals who reject Scripture. No, desire God's Word because you have tasted and seen the goodness of the Lord, and you have a hunger for more. You know that you need more. On our recent road trip for the holidays, we always stop the gas stations and get a candy bar because, you know, what else do you have to do in the car? I tried this one I had never tried before called the Kinder Bueno. It's this light, crisp wafer thing with this gooey kind of hazelnut filling, and it's just the right amount of crunchy. The chocolate's better than usual. It's just fantastic. I think it's going to be my new go-to, and just thinking about it makes me want another one, right? Right. Maybe I've sold you on, on trying this thing. If you see it, go over to Casey's and see if they, they have one after the service. Uh, Kinder Bueno, B-U-E-N-O. like a, a Kinder, I don't know, I guess it's German and Spanish at the same time. I don't understand. It's this international, it's a fusion kind of thing. Um, but they're really good. But my point is, not the candy bar, but how do we stir up this longing for God? longing for the, the, the pure spiritual milk that he has to give us to remember the goodness of the Lord that we've already tasted. That's what Peter has been trying to, to do for them all along, reminding them how good God is, how they've already tasted and seen the goodness of God as he caused them to be born again through a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. I know that last week I said I don't usually bother with New Year's resolutions, because if it wasn't a high enough priority for me to do already, you know, the new year isn't enough to convince me and so forth, but I wonder if we can commit uh, to making that our goal together, to long for God, long for his sustaining grace. Whatever else we do, whatever other discussions that we have even as we continue to talk about in this sermon series other aspects of the work God has given us if we work hard at not losing sight of that basic instruction that he has for us longing for the pure spiritual milk longing for the goodness of God that we have tasted and seen already can we make that the heart of our fellowship together That's what I mean in that first word, receive. It's essentially remembering what we have already received, longing to receive more of the love and grace that God pours out for us. The second word was give. And before you get tense, I'm not going to talk about financial giving or tithing. It's so much more than that. As we look at verses 4 and 6, Peter says, As you come to him, to shame and there is so much beauty in this image we come to God and God is the one who builds us into a spiritual house to offer spiritual sacrifices there's a beautiful point there if we want to be built in the to the kind of church God would have us to be we need to come to God continually so that he builds us that's why longing for God and for the ways God works within us is at the heart of this thing called church, right? But God is building us for a purpose here, for things that we would do, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices Peter kind of mixes up his metaphor here, we're both the temple and the priesthood, but he does so under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, so we'll, uh, we won't be too picky about things. But we are both the temple, we are the priests who serve in the temple, we receive God's presence among us, and then we serve God in his presence. What is that service, and what are these sacrifices That He has in mind. You might hear spiritual sacrifice and think, well, worship its what we did. As we sang earlier, we bring the sacrifice of praise, and it certainly is worship or includes worship in the sense of our corporate praise of God and singing and prayer. But expanding our view here uh, to the rest of the New Testament, I think it begins to touch on other parts of church life as well. Uh, You can think of other passages that talk about sacrifices that we bring to God. Romans 12.1, Paul says, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual or reasonable, it's that logic cost word again, as reasonable or spiritual worship. Paul goes on to tell us to be transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we can discern God's will, and then what follows is Beautiful instruction about the life of the church, our relationships with one another, and humility and love and, and service and forgiveness. You could also look at Philippians 4:18. Paul again speaking of sacrifice. In this case, the Philippians have sent a financial gift to Paul while he's in while he's in prison. And Paul says those gifts are a fragrant offering. A sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Now, we, we sometimes can hear, I guess, a, maybe critique about uh, the idea of, of giving and not going. It's easy to send a check, it's harder to put boots on the ground, and there is something to that criticism, right? As the church as a whole, we do need both. But We don't want to downplay what the New Testament says about giving if it's done for the right purposes, not like the Pharisees just to uh, impress others, Uh, but Paul speaks of this as a, a beautiful sacrifice, fragrant, acceptable, pleasing to God. Spiritual in the New Testament doesn't usually means something like immaterial or invisible. It's closer to something like part of a new life that God has given us, the life that we live in the power of the Holy Spirit. Very, very ordinary things can be spiritual if we do them as the overflow of the Spirit's work in our lives. Well, Hebrews 13 Uh, sings a variation of this same tune. Through him, through Jesus, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Two elements there, of course, the lips that acknowledge God's name and then doing good and sharing what you have. So what are the sacrifices we offer as God's holy priesthood? Well, I think it includes both the praises that we speak and we sing and we pray together and the way that we love and serve one another in the life of the church. If we are being built together by God to be his temple where his glory dwells, then we glorify him by fitting together well as his temple. Each stone holds up the one next to it. How, you often hear the, the sort of analogy of vertical to horizontal. You know, what we think of as vertical direction of our, our lives, our praise to God. Here it doesn't really exist apart from the horizontal dimension, the, the fellowship or community of the local church. It's similar to something that we've talked about in one of our Sunday school classes, looking at the Old Testament prophets, Uh, We saw the idea there where Israel had that immense dysfunction within the community. People were cheating and stealing and taking advantage of one another instead of loving their neighbors. And that's one reason, in addition to their idolatry, that, that God rejects their worship. You can't really separate these two. If we are to be God's temple then we need to be God's temple. It's no wonder Peter tells us in this context to put away malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. Can we really come before God and praise him with the same tongues that we use to tear down our fellow believers, brothers and sisters for whom Christ died? So the point is, God will not merely be glorified by his people, but he will be glorified in his people. That is the call. We are to be his temple, and the beauty of the temple proclaims the glory of the God who dwells within it. So that's all that we have in mind with with give. Is ultimately the life of the church. Proclaim, then, our third key point here, and final one. Beginning in verse 9, Peter says, But you are a chosen race, royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy but now you have received mercy. Peter is really quoting God's promises to Israel in Exodus 19 as they are about to receive the Ten Commandments and the whole Sinai covenant. God says, You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. We see there is a special belonging to God and a special role of service to God. And we could spend the rest of the afternoon getting into different frameworks for how these words come to be applied to the New Testament church, to us today, to Christ's first church. But the key thing is that Peter is clearly talking to the New Testament church and they clearly do apply to us one way or another. We do belong to God. We are one church people, an outpost of the kingdom of God and Christ Jesus, and we have a mission which Peter describes as a mission of proclamation. The word Peter uses for proclaim here doesn't generally mean proclaim in the sense of proclaim in worship. It means to tell out, to tell forth. Sometimes it's used in the sense of betraying a secret, sort of letting the cat out of the bag, to divulge, to publish, to tell abroad, but look at what it is we tell forth, the excellencies of God. My mind goes to Psalms, like Psalm 96 says, O sing to the Lord a new song, sing to the Lord all the earth, sing to the Lord, bless his name, tell of his salvation from day to day, then the next verse, declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. So, is First Peter two about proclaiming God's glory on Sunday morning in worship, or about preaching the gospel to the lost? I think the answer is yes. Again, they clearly go hand in hand. The goal of corporate worship is the same as the goal of the church's ministry to the lo- to the lost to proclaim the glory of God in Christ Jesus. We do so at least for two reasons, because we, we desire and God desires that others would come and praise him, and because we have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And if I want to tell you about a candy bar uh, that I had on a road trip, certainly we should desire to tell our neighbors about the goodness of God that we have tasted, which, believe it or not, is even better than chocolate and hazelnuts together. They go hand in hand. So at its heart, evangelism, if we could put it this way, is just praising God for the salvation that we've received in a way that other people can hear that praise. Maybe you've noticed a pattern of what I'm saying here, that both our service to each other here in the church and our service to the world around us are rooted in our service To God. The spiritual sacrifices we offer to God are sacrifices of of love and care for one another. The proclamation of the gospel to the lost is proclamation of the glory of God in all the earth. And both of those tasks, we call them the giving of sacrifice and the proclaiming, are inseparably bound to our understanding of who we now are in Christ Jesus. We were not a people but now we are God's people. We had not received mercy, but now we have received mercy. You might argue that what I described as our first work isn't so much a work at all. It's the work, quote-unquote, of receiving what God gives us. We have received the righteousness and redemption of Christ once and for all, not because of any work we do, but because of the work Christ has already done for us, taking the penalty of our sins on the cross, rising for our justification. That is the work that defines our identity before God, that we have received mercy. We are his people that he is building by his mercy. That is the work that defines our identity before God. It's on the basis of that work of Christ Jesus that any spiritual sacrifices we offer, any work we do is acceptable to God. Our work as a church together will never be perfect any more than your works in your individual life will ever be perfect in this life. But our works are acceptable and pleasing to God because he views us as perfect in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So does Jesus Christ have a work for us to do? Absolutely. He has a calling for my life, calling for your life, calling for us together here as Christ for his church. And everything he calls us to do has one goal, the glory of God and the gospel of Jesus. That's his goal, and may it be ours as well. I don't want us to miss this Point, it's important to say at this outset of this series on how do we do church that this is God's work that we do in dependence on Him, having received His grace. We don't want to give the impre- impression that the church is defined by our to do list. Having understood that as individual believers, uh, our worth is not in, in what we own or what we do, but that Christ has laid down his life for us, right? We've been born again by the precious blood of the Lamb. And then we could be tempted to go turn and say that, well, as a church then, though uh, we are, our value is in what we do and by our works. But that's not right. Christian believers are righteous in Christ and the bride of Christ is cleansed by the blood of Christ. Legalism always backfires anyway if we are to be faithful in all the various tasks and callings that make up the work of the church, all the things that we might come up with to do to try to fulfill that, to encourage people to connect and care for one another, to connect with the community, we could come up with a never-ending to-do list, but we need to stay rooted in that very first task, to receive, to remember together what we have already received in Christ, what God has promised that we will receive, and what he gives us day by day and with each passing moment. The only way to be fruitful, both individually and for us as a church together, is to abide in the love of Christ. So let us then abide in his love together. And let's pray. Our Father in heaven, I am awestruck at the wonder of your grace that we who had rejected, sinned against you, you would choose to redeem freely by your grace not only to pick us up out of the mud and wash us clean and give us a blank slate to prove ourselves, but no, you have done everything so that there is no need to prove ourselves. We have been born again. We have this inheritance that we never could earn or deserve simply because Jesus died and rose again and that you would take us and build us into what your word describes as a temple, a place where your glory dwells, your architecture, your handiwork, that our fellowship, our community would be beautiful. And we know we look forward to the day when all of God's people are gathered together and perfectly display your glory the way that you intended us to do we know that even now by your grace by your spirit we can display the love and grace and mercy of God to one another in our fellowship and that you can use us to show that same grace and mercy to those around us. We pray that that's what we would be. We pray that as we continue to consider what it is to be your church, that as we come to you, you would build us into that temple. We certainly thank you for all the ways that your Glory is already seen among us and we long for more. We pray that we would be that outpost of the kingdom that any who come here would see and know the goodness of God. Not only as we speak it to them, but also simply by looking at the life of our fellowship here together. Be glorified in our praises, in our lives, in our life together. We ask these things in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.